the idea for uh, this talk was inspired by Paul Eli, uh, who's speaking later tonight, and who in 2012 asked why Christian fiction had nearly vanished. Um, Christian language, he argued, quote, figures into literary fiction in our place and time as something between a dead language and a hangover. Half a century after Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, Reynolds Price, and John Updike presented themselves as novelists with what O'Connor called Christian convictions, few writers write as they did. His essay met with rejoinders and responses, but the essential part is hard to deny. The realities that animate Christian lives, grace, sacrifice, forgiveness, doubt, conversion, do not animate fiction the way they did 50 or 60 years ago. Today, I'm going to propose one reason for that loss. We don't have a Christian criticism. We lack an ongoing interrogation into the distinctive aesthetic questions that arise when writers attempt to represent uh, experience in the Christian tradition. As a result, while writers like Alice McDermott and Marilyn Robinson see themselves in dialogue and other contemporary writers see themselves in dialogue with numerous traditions, with realism or postmodernism, with genre traditions like the mystery or science fiction, subgenres like the war novel, they rarely see themselves in aesthetic dialogue with Christian writers of the past. Christianity no longer serves as an aesthetically generative tradition in the way that perhaps it once did, um, and doesn't often drive writers to develop new ways of imagining. In this talk, I'm going to offer a brief sketch or really just kind of draw a, an example from a particular literary critical tradition in full flower, that of African-American literature. Um, I'll summarize just one element of that vast and vital tradition in order to represent the kinds of things that criticism of a particular tradition can do. Then I'll sketch three questions that can serve as starting points for a distinctively Christian literary criticism. And finally, I'll offer a brief close reading of passages from O'Connor and Marilyn Robinson, who on one key question represent different approaches. Christian tradition, or a critical tradition, interrogates the aesthetic problems that a particular historically bounded literature faces and has faced. Its primary question is not what is the beautiful, but in what ways has a particular literature represented beauty? What aesthetic resources does a particular strain of writing offer, and what problems has it not yet solved? There's a dramatic scene in colonial Boston that exemplifies this particularity uh, in relation to early African-American literature. Um, I'm thinking of the much-studied scene in 1772 when uh, Phyllis Wheatley, then 18 years old, stood for an examination between, before 18 elders of Boston, including merchants, clergymen, the royal governor of Massachusetts, and John Hancock. Um, Wheatley, uh, a young woman who had been born in Africa and enslaved, kidnapped, brought to uh, the New World, purchased by the Boston merchant John Wheatley, uh, who had taught her uh, English and given her literary education. Wheatley showed early poetic talent, and her owner sought to publish a small collection of her poems when publishers raised questions about whether the poems were really the work of a person of Af African descent. So this investigation was called to say, did she actually write these poems? We don't really know what happened, but... Uh, these 18 elders of Boston were satisfied that this 18, poor 18-year-old girl who had stood examination before you imagine this as like your qualifying exam. It sounds even worse than an actual qualifying exam. Um, and they were satisfied, and the poems were published with an attestation by the gentleman that their authorship was genuine. 
Henry Louis Gates Jr., uh, turns to this moment to articulate the relationship between imaginative writing and racism that drove the investigation. Quote, why, he asks, was the creative writing of the African of such importance to the 18th century's debates over slavery? I can briefly outline one thesis. After Rene Descartes, reason was privileged or valorized above all other human characteristics. Writing, especially after the printing press became so widespread, was taken to be the visible sign of reason. Blacks were reasonable, and hence men, if and only if they demonstrated the mastery of the arts and sciences, the 18th century's formula for writing. So uh, he refers to a number of prominent intellectuals, from Jefferson and Voltaire to Kant and David Hume, who argued specifically over this question of writing by persons of African descent, and saw the presence or absence of literary creation as a crucial, perhaps the crucial mark, deciding whether Africans were to, people of African descent were to be given sort of full membership in the human family. Um, as a result of that, Black, early black authorship was always also a claim for full ontological and political equality. And this is a situation that marks a lot of the early texts. When you look at slave narratives and early African-American novels, uh, there is this kind of dual phenomenon um, in which they're both writing a text and also making this kind of uh, supertextual claim. Um, and that affects questions of in what voice those texts are to be written. Um, often, claiming a voice meant claiming standard English. The question whether to write in standard English or in African-American vernacular was not merely a private choice, uh, because African-American vernacular registered to white readers as a mark of illiteracy and ignorance. Black writers faced then a kind of dual challenge, to claim their own personhood by proving their mastery of European forms and to establish the credibility of black spoken English as a literary form. The first claim historically tended to take precedence. In the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, these texts tended to be written in uh, standard English. Um, and that is what makes, when we move into the early 20th century, makes uh, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, such an original text, because by being written in this kind of combined dialect, a uh, 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 voice that combines dialect with a very poetic standard English, uh, it makes a claim for the viability of that dialect as a mode of thought and expression. Um, I don't, unfortunately, have time to go into exactly how she solves this aesthetic problem, um, but the thing that I would like to mention is that that novel, novel is making a claim for the nature of dialect. And she does that, for instance, by using a kind of Jamesian free and direct discourse to merge dialect into the narrative, um, and also by representing African-American vernacular as a medium of thought, by thinking, showing it not as a lack or a, a privation, but as a sort of productive mode of dealing with new intellectual problems. Um, so to sum up, in the African-American tradition, the question of what voice to use is not merely a private or aesthetic decision, although it is an aesthetic one. It's also a decision about how to navigate these, this history of debate. Um, and the existence of that history and the existence of uh, solutions that new artists find frustrating or incomplete 
drives the creation of new literary texts. So what does the values that all that all that have for Christian criticism? Christians today obviously don't face anything like the persecution that uh, the founders of the African American tradition faced, but they do face distinctive problems of representation, problems that do, are not found in other literary traditions or in novels trying to do other things. Those problems and their solutions uh, it become visible as critics attempt to formulate them and writers attempt to solve them in dialogue with previous attempts to formulate and solve the same problems. So to give you an example, I want to formulate, to sort of suggest three. First, there's the question, how do we represent or how can we represent religion religiously? Because uh, if you think about recent literature, you can find plenty of texts in which Christianity or other religions appears, or it's all over the place. Um, it often appears as a mark of Italian or Korean or Southern cultural milieu. It can appear as a mark of a warm and loving family or as a crabbed family from which the protagonist needs to escape. Uh, we're all familiar with the trope of the straight-laced Christian hypocrite. Um, there's also a kind of vague New Age view that sees every religious practice as a particular expression of a common underlying shared spirituality, sort of the, some kind of pure human ethos that is manifested sometimes with mantras and sometimes with rosaries and sometimes with crystals. But it's all the same thing in the end. This pluralistic spirituality is a particularly difficult artistic challenge because it appears quite generous toward religion while draining religion of its truth claims, and when it drains it of its truth claims, it also drains it of its distinctive feel and character, which I think is a lot of the substance that artists are working with. Christianity is easily admitted into fiction so long as it transforms itself into either an element of culture or into one of the many masks of the divine self. But when God's grace is pre-interpreted as beauty or spirituality, how can a writer represent it as grace? That, I think, is the aesthetic question that exercised Flannery O'Connor throughout her career. When she wrote that, quote, to the hard of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures, she's not calling for a didactic fiction, but for a fiction that uses extreme methods to make Christianity register as Christianity. O'Connor discovered a paradox about writing of religion in modernity. A scene in which a child is drowned represents baptism more clearly than a scene in which a child is baptized. Baptismal imagery is so common, it appears as a symbol of great personal transformation, um, that it is difficult to make it appear as the thing that O'Connor understood it to be. In St. Paul's words, we who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. O'Connor found that to represent what she saw as the dead seriousness of baptism, the transformation of the soul that it affects, a baptismal scene just wouldn't do anymore. She could not make baptism mean baptism, but she might make murder mean baptism. Few Christian writers since O'Connor have taken up that particular challenge, which I think is one of the answers to Eli's original question. Um, because I think that in the manner in which traditions work, now that she has introduced it, it's a challenge that she brings to the fore and which any subsequent writer who's unhappy with her solutions must grapple with. The second question is, what is the subject of Christian fiction? A powerful strand of writing associated with Graham Greene, George Bernanos, Shusaku Endo, and others 
made the question of faith versus doubt central to the novel in the 20th century. Indeed, you could come away from a Graham Greene novel thinking that a Christian is someone who doesn't know whether heaven is real, but is sure he's not going there. (laughs) (laughs) Many writers who take Christian faith seriously write narratives that derive their dramatic energy from doubt. But the problem with this approach is that it makes doubt an index of authenticity. It's by our doubts that we know that our faith is genuine. Too often, these stories make a kind of fetish of doubt itself, denying the people whose faith is at least temporarily untroubled are really believers. Um, the representational advantages of uh, faith and doubt are that doubt makes for drama, makes a good novel, and dubious faith seems easier to swallow today. Um, but the cost is that it radically shrinks the subjects that a novel engaged with Christianity can actually cover. There's a lot more to say than asking, is God really there? Uh, Christian writers and critics need ways of representing the wide spectrum of faith and doubt, not merely the most tentative or troubled end of it. Um, And I'll just, jumping forward a little bit, the third question I had was a question of what makes fiction Christian, um, and was going to discuss the question of to what degree it's a function of style versus a function of content. Uh, But I do want to jump forward to my close readings while time still permits. Um, So I want to start with Flannery O'Connor's The Violent Bear It Away, which I argue represents God's love as something intrinsic to human nature by transforming the Freudian imagination that saw religion as a kind of substituted eco-defense. The novel's protagonist, 14-year-old Francis Marion Tarwater, was raised by his great-uncle Mason to be a prophet and has decidedly mixed feelings about his vocation. He enjoys the images of fire, the burning bush, and the sun standing still, but he fears the, quote, threatened intimacy with creation, end quote, that a prophetic life carries with it. He wants autonomy, the freedom to determine in what his life will consist, and fears that a prophetic call will obligate him towards other people. Susan Strigley has described Tarwater's dilemma as a conflict between that personal autonomy and what she calls an ethic of responsibility, his Tarwater's demonic, possibly hallucinated friend sums up that conflict when he says, quote, it ain't Jesus or the devil. It's Jesus or you. What I want to add to Strigley's account is this. Tarwater is afraid precisely that he will want to surrender his autonomy. Quote, what he was secretly afraid of was that old Mason's hunger for the bread of life might strike some day in him, and then he would be torn by hunger like the old man, the bottom split out of his stomach so that nothing would heal or fill it but the bread of life. Tarwater fears losing his autonomy to the part of himself that wants the love of God and carries with it these moral obligations. To achieve autonomy, therefore, it's not enough for him to reject the bread of life. He must repress it. And he carries out that repression in ways that echo but subversively transform the Freudian accounts of repression. Freudian psychoanalysis, which reached its peak during O'Connor's lifetime, its peak influence, claimed that religious practices are roughly akin to OCD. Both, Freud argued, are substitutes that serve to compensate for, quote, the fundamental renunciation of the satisfaction of inherent instincts and to control those underlying repressed desires. Both are full of meaning, but not the meaning the participants attribute to them. Just as an obsessive patient is unconscious of the reasons why he practices his compulsion, 
Um, believers' true reasons for performing their rituals are unconscious and egoistic. They're ways of sublimating and expressing desires for violence, revenge, and self-assertion that can't be directly expressed. What Freud thinks characteristic of religion comes in O'Connor's hands to represent unbelief. Tarwater's uncle Raber, an atheist and school psychologist who adopts the boy after Mason's death, repeats a mantra when Tarwater frustrates him. He, quote, says to himself in an effort to calm his irritation, this child hasn't had a chance. Remember, he hasn't had a chance. That idea that Tarwater hasn't had a chance is a key element of Raber's worldview. Raber believes that every child deserves the opportunity to grow unfettered and fulfill his potential, and that Tarwater's chance has been inhibited by psychological complexes derived from his childhood. But while his statement expresses his worldview and moral viewpoint, that's its denotative meaning, those aren't the reasons he makes the statement. He makes it as a kind of repeated token or mechanism to contain the anger that arises because Tarwater's statement reminds him of his uncle, and thus of Raber's own repressed love for his uncle, for God, and the bread of life. Raber's repetitive statement becomes a religious practice in Freud's sense, a device for protecting his self-image, not from threatening revelations of sexuality or ego formation, but from his desire to love in a divine sense. The primary feeling that Raber represses is his love for his son, a mentally handicapped boy named Bishop. Although most of the time he treats Bishop as though he were not there, quote, moments would still come when rushing from some inexplicable part of himself, he would experience a love for the child so outrageous that he would be left shocked and depressed for days and trembling for his sanity. If without thinking he lent himself to it, he would suddenly feel suddenly a morbid surge of the love that terrified him, powerful enough to throw him down to the ground in an act of idiot praise. This is a love that begins with his attraction to his love for his child, but then expands out into the whole world. He once tried to escape his situation by drowning the boy, but suffered a failure of nerve. He blames his unconscious mind for betraying his rational conviction that the boy is worthless and should die, and he can maintain, quote, maintain my self-respect only by a constant struggle not to have the boy baptized. His undercurrent of profound, transformative love threatens the life that Raber has chosen. Love here is not a sublimation of some more fundamental drive, but is itself a drive and a desire that can be accepted, satisfied, denied, repressed, or sublimated. O'Connor translates the hound of heaven trope of the sinner fleeing God into psychoanalytic terms. But in doing so, she transforms both psychoanalysis and grace. The characters whom T.W. Hendricks called O'Connor's spoiled prophets become repressed prophets, defending their egos against love. By representing love through the devices that Raber and Tarwater use to repress it, O'Connor represents religious love then as something properly basic, as something we can't get away from, this fundamental drive like Eros, something that's natural, not a cultural formation. I wish time permitted a fuller uh, reading of O'Connor, but I need to move on to Marilyn Robinson. I guess I shouldn't say I need to because she's absolutely wonderful. Um, in her first novel, Housekeeping, Robinson takes what looks at first like a cu more customary approach, representing God's grace through beauty. But she does so in an original way by splitting beauty away from the materiality of her richly described world. The narrator, Ruth, tells us of quote, one summer evening in a beautiful, luminous description with all the sensuous merits we expect, expect from excellent 20th century prose. 
We can hear, quote, the rasp of the knife as Ruth's aunt Sylvie buttered and sacked the toast and see and hear the girls, quote, bumping our heels with a soft, slow rhythm against the legs of our chairs, staring through the warped and bubbled window at the brighter darkness. The narrator's sister, Lucille, turns on the light, and Robinson gives us a wonderful inversion of light and darkness. Quote, the window went black, and the cluttered kitchen leaped, so it seemed into being as remote from what had gone before as this world from the primal darkness. This is a scene of classic defamiliarization, uh, where this sort of simple action of turning on the light is given a new kind of sense because she calls our attention to the one thing that becomes dark when you turn on the light, namely the window out into the night beyond. Um, then she analogizes the narrator's sight of the kitchen to creation ex nihilo in Genesis as it leaped into view. But what's most surprising is that Robinson's beautiful language describes a scene that is not beautiful. Now that the light is on, Ruth can see that, quote, we ate from, the, from plates that came in detergent boxes, and we drank from jelly glasses. Lucille had started, startled us all, flooding the room so suddenly with light, exposing heaps of pots and dishes, the two cupboard doors which had come unhinged and were propped against boxes of china, the tables and chairs and cupboards and doors had been painted a rich white, layer on layer, year after year, but now that last layer had ripened to the yellow of turning cream. Everywhere the paint was chipped and marred. The poverty of the scene doesn't mar the beauty of the language, which kind of floats above the scene. And it's not just the material poverty that's being described. There's this third level, which is the girl's fear. Ruth and Lucille have, by this point, had several caregivers, each of whom has abandoned them their mother who committed suicide, then their grandmother with whom they lived several, several years and who finally died and they were the ones who discovered her dead in bed, then uh, two great aunts of theirs who come and try to take care of them but give up after about six months, and then finally Aunt Sylvie who has spent most of her adult life as a homeless transient. Um, she, Sylvie insists that she has a husband but she tries to pass off a photo clip from a magazine as a picture of him um, and after that lie, quote, Lucille forgave her nothing and began insisting on a light. So she turns on the light because as an expression of her distrust of her aunt, who she fears, and Ruth also fears, will be the last of a long line of caregivers who abandon them. Understandably, Lucille's distrust is tied up in her fear. Um, and I'm going to skip some descriptions of, um, of Sylvie's habits her, Sylvie's transient habits um, to jump down to say that there's a great deal of longing in this passage. Lucille's offended propriety and Ruthie's childish hopes both cover the fear that Sylvie would leave them as their other mother figures had. And the entire scene from Lucille flicking on the lights to Sylvie sleeping in the car is shot through with that fear. The luminous style that transfigures sooty walls and kitchen windows also conveys this scene fraught with barely concealed terror. The beauty, that comes from some, the beauty then comes from something other than the ordinary feelings or associations we might have with the scene. That otherness marks the beauty as grace, not as merely aesthetic. Robinson's poetic style and deftness of observation charge with beauty, a scene in which beauty seems absent. In this, she aligns with Paul Schrader's argument about film that spirituality is a function of style, not of content. 
But it's crucial also to note the difference between Robinson's style and the secular romanticism that she's sometimes been uh, read through. Because the beauty of this scene floats behind, above, not in the scene, there is no suggestion that the beauty was there all along for us, if only we could have looked up and seen it. The beauty that in Robinson almost always signals God's grace signals him by virtue of its irreducibility to any human feeling or material object. The danger in this approach, of course, is that it will register precisely as mortal beauty, not as grace. Where Robinson's grace is higher than our highest selves, then O'Connor's is more inward than our most inwardly. Borrowing from St. Augustine there. Uh, She represents grace through... O'Connor represents grace through our defenses against it, thus making it appear as the deepest truth about ourselves. In O'Connor's world, we can only escape God's love. We can escape God's love only with repression so powerful that they break our very selves. Seems a pretty good description of sin. Now, I don't want to compare O'Connor and Robinson as in, just as individual artists, nor as, as is too often happens, as representatives, as respectively a Catholic and a Protestant imagination, because I want to think of them as members of a shared tradition arguing about how grace can be rep- represented in a way that makes it register as grace. Alistair McIntyre has pointed out that our tradition is constituted in large part by its debates, the positions it's made available, and the questions that it's made visible but has not yet resolved. Much of what he says applies as well to an artistic tradition, and point of criticism in such a tradition is to articulate the achievements of previous works, and in so doing, articulate the questions that they haven't yet resolved. These sort of perpetual or continuing debates, um, the things that might still be out there to resolve, Hopefully, by putting them in such a tradition, by situating them in this way as part of a debate, it can then open vehicles for the creation of new art. And that, I hope, is how this answers Paul Eli's question. Thank you all very much.